We're going to cover Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. I've titled it, Sin Breaks God's Heart and Destroys Us. So we'll start by prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this awesome opportunity to gather and to fellowship. And Lord, we just pray that you'll open our hearts to understand what you have for us today. And we know that your word is like a sword which splits and divides between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And you'll be doing that today. So help us to have soft hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Ezekiel 6, verses 1 to 14, sin breaks God's heart and destroys us. Now the memory verse, are you ready? Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Don't you love that? And you will. It's not you might. (laughs) God is changing us to be like him, yeah? Okay, so last week, in chapter 5, we saw that God was predicting that the unrepentant people remaining in Jerusalem would be judged in three different ways. Do you remember them? One third dying in battle, one third dying by famine and disease, and one third being scattered and persecuted. And God also hinted at one of the big reasons that Israel was right for judgment, and that was spiritual adultery, which we talked about last week. So this week, in chapter 6, we're going to see something that's really quite rare in the Scriptures. God is going to reveal or expose his heart as he shares how sin, spiritual adultery, affects him personally. God's heart is crushed or broken by our sin, which is defined by being unfaithful to him. What does it mean? Well, idolatry. We are guilty of idolatry when our affections or love for other things is greater or stronger than our affections or love for God. We allow our love and affections for other things to replace or supersede our love for God. God is no longer our first love, our first priority. Now one of the things that we're going to look at today that causes us to leave our first love is lust, sexual sin. And... We can submit to that idol and pull away from God. And that's one of the things that caused Israel to sin. So you think about these idols, they're just blocks of stone and stuff, but it's the way they worshipped these idols which was the real problem. So let's read the chapter and you'll soon find out what we're talking about. So Ezekiel 6, 1-14 Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys. Indeed I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. This is places or centers of idol worship or pagan worship. That's what the word high places means. Then your altars shall be desolate. These are the altars to the idols. Your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols, and I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease, Your incense altars may be cut down and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me, 
and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. Thus says the Lord God, Pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence, he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when the slain are among their idols, all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every thick oak, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols. So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate, yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Ribla, in all their dwelling places, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So let's take the first three verses. This is God's judgment against the places of idol worship. So I'll just read those three verses again. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. So in verse 2 it says, Set your face against the mountains of Israel. What's God got against the mountains of Israel? Well, it's not the actual topography he's interested in is what goes on there the tops of the hills and mountains were centers of idol worship and in the old testament as you read through you'll hear this phrase high places over and over again and it'll probably come up in a verse which says and they still did not remove their high places and so and so did not destroy the high places or the people continued worshiping at the high places and i got a quote from a guy called wright Probably in any part of Israel at this time, you would have found some mountain or hill crowned with an altar, one or two standing stones, a wooden pillar, and a clump of evergreen trees. They were flourishing centers of the old Canaanite religion, which should have been destroyed when Israel conquered the Canaanites. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 5 is what he's referring to there. It says, this is what you must do. This is God's instructions to them before they went into the land. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their sacred pillars. Cut down their Asherah or Ashtoreth poles and burn their idols. That's what they were told to do. Now, do you think they did it? They didn't. As I was mentioning before, it was a curse to them. It was a snare. Because they never fully destroyed this temptation to sin, guess what happened? <laughs> the sin is now destroying them. Okay, This is an important principle. Samson is a good example. He had a problem with lust. He went down to see a prostitute called Delilah. And what happened? He wanted her more and more and more. His desire for her became so strong that eventually he ended up telling her about the secret to his strength, and he was destroyed. So God gives us the opportunity to deal completely with our sin. But if we don't, it will eventually destroy us. So we're going to talk about that more next week. Now, verse 3, it says, To the ravines and to the valleys. The Israelites also continued the ancient Canaanite practice of child sacrifice and the worship of other pagan idols in the valleys. And ravines. So today we call that abortion. Okay. So basically nothing's changed. And why do we have abortion? It's the result of sexual immorality. A culture that is engaged in sexual immorality will, of course, have abortions because of the lack of self control. So I've got a few scriptures to illustrate this from different parts of the Bible. So Isaiah 57 5 to 8. And this refers to child sacrifice in the valleys and the worship of Mother Earth. So 
You worship your idols with great passion beneath the oaks and under every green tree. You sacrifice your children down in the valleys. This is why God is so angry against the valleys and the ravines, right? You sacrifice your children down in the valleys, among the jagged rocks in the cliffs. Your gods are the smooth stones in the valleys. And I kind of think of that as like this New Age Mother Earth thing with the crystals and all that kind of stuff. You worship them with liquid offerings and grain offerings. They, not I, are your inheritance. So a little note here. If you belong to this evil world system, you've got nothing waiting for you on the other side, yeah? As Christians, God is our inheritance. When our parents die, they leave us something. Well, most parents do. God has left us something in heaven. We have a reward, we have eternal life, we have glorified bodies to look forward to, we have lots to look forward to, a great inheritance. But here, God says, they, not I, are your inheritance. They have nothing on the other side. When they die, they've got nothing. And then it continues, Do you think all this makes me happy? And the answer, of course, is no. Ephesians 4.30, sin grieves God. Verse 7, you have committed adultery on every high mountain. There you have worshipped idols and have been unfaithful to me. You have put pagan symbols on your doorposts and behind your doors. You have left me and climbed into bed with these detestable gods. You have committed yourselves to them. You love to look at their naked bodies. So, why do these ancient people worship idols? Because it's the same reason we sin today is because it's to satisfy the lust of the flesh. It's just opportunities to satisfy the lust of the flesh. And a part of this cultic of idol worship was to have sex with a ritual prostitute. And also the whole thing with pornography, images, was a part of their religion. It says you love to look at their naked bodies. Another scripture is Hosea 4, 11-14. And this talks about worshipping idols which included sexual sin and drunkenness. And you could also include substance abuse here as well. Verse 11, Hosea 4. Harlotry, wine and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and temperance, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots, and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore people who do not understand will be trampled. So you see what's happening with these idols? Part of the offering you would make is to have sex with the ritual harlot there, the, the prostitute. That's how they financed their idol worship, basically. Jeremiah 7, 30-34, and this is specifically about child sacrifice. It also mentions the abominations in the temple. The people of Judah have sinned before my very eyes, says the Lord. They have set up their abominable idols right in the temple that bears my name, defiling it. They have built pagan shrines at Topeth, and this is just outside Jerusalem, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and there they burn their sons and daughters in the fire. This is how God feels about abortion, right? I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to commit such a thing. So beware, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topeth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. They will bury the bodies in Topeth until there is no more room for them. The bodies of my people will be food for the vultures and wild animals, and no one will be left to scare them away. I will put an end to the happy singing and laughter in the streets of Jerusalem. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard in the towns of Judah. The land will lie in complete desolation as a result of the coming judgment, that is. So, 70 years the judgment would last. 
Now, I've got an application here. Has anything really changed? I mean, I compared what was going on at that time with what's going on in our Western world. Australia, Europe, America. You know, we still have idol worship. We may not worship on the tops of hills, you know, having sex with the ritual prostitutes that worked at these high places, these places for pagan worship. But today, many continue to worship idols by continuing to love to look at pornography, the naked bodies on the internet and social media. And many indulge their sinful nature by ignoring God's command to save physical intimacy until marriage. So, also today, many continue the practice of child sacrifice, and we soften that and we call it abortion. So, my point is, if God judged the Israelites back then for these sins, should he not judge us today as well? Should not our depraved Western culture be fearing God's judgment? Well, you bet. What's the next main event on the prophetic calendar? After the rapture, when God takes the church away, it's called the tribulation, right? The Jews suffered a lot in their siege and in the attacks by the Babylonians. But I'll tell you what, if you bother to read the book of Revelation, you'll find that the suffering described in those pages for those seven years is going to be worse. One of them is going to be a demonic thing where these demons are going to come out from the middle of the earth and they're going to sting people. And the pain is going to be so severe, for five months, they're going to want to die. But they can't. And then at the end of that, you've got these other demonic things coming along and they kill a third of mankind. We're talking some serious judgments. And that's towards the end where it gets more and more serious. It gets harder and, and the judgments get worse and worse towards the end. So basically, there is a judgment coming. God is justified in judging this world with those horrible judgments because we are so evil. I'm not talking about us personally, but I'm talking about our culture. And it's not just the Western culture. The whole world is depraved. And verse 3, I, indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. So, as we learnt in previous weeks, Ezekiel is fulfilling his role as a watchman by warning them of the coming judgment. Guess what? There is a coming judgment coming. Are we being watchmen to our generation? Caught up in sin, we need to warn people that God will judge sin. Right, verses 4 to 7. Then your altars shall be desolate, your incense altars shall be broken down, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols, and I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and are made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Before we start on this, I just want to comment. It says, and your works may be abolished in verse 6. Everything they had put effort into, everything they had worked for, is going to go. All gone. Everything they worked so hard for, everything they sacrificed for, it wasn't for God. It was for themselves, for their own pleasure. It's all going to go. There'll be nothing to show. Now, there's an application here in verse 4. It says, I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And <laughs> my way of talking, well, isn't this the truth? <laughs> what they trusted in to protect and prosper them and to bring satisfaction will do nothing for them. In fact, it's going to kill them. What does James 1.15 say? When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So our idols offer us false security, false happiness, false hope, and only temporary satisfaction. So these men trusted in and worshipped their idols right to the end. They would not repent, and they ended up dead, and all for nothing. 
nothing to show for all their sacrifice. Verse 5, it says, And I will scatter your bones all around your altars. So back then, because they had physical places where they used to commit these sins. We don't now. We have phones and computers and whatever. Okay, But back then, they had these physical places. If you had dead bones and put dead bones around there, then that was defiled and you could no longer use the area for that purpose. So basically, this is God's way of saying that these areas would never ever be used for pagan worship again. These altars, these places of pagan worship or idol worship were defiled, never to be used for idol worship again. Now, there's a quote here from Clark, he says, This was literally fulfilled by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. According to Barak, they opened the sepulchres, the tombs of the principal people, that is, the important people, and threw the bones about on every side. So, just like God said, it happened. Every detail about this invasion was exactly fulfilled as foretold by God. So why would the Babylonians bother to do that? Well, God knew they would, and so God tells them that they were going to do that. They didn't have to do that, but they did. Another application is this whole thing about your altars. We can have our own altars. Now, what are these altars for? For sin. Okay? So first, let's talk about God's altar. God invites us to come to his altar. We are invited to come to him and lay our lives down as a living sacrifice to God, dying to self and not being conformed to this world, but allowing God to transform our minds so we can know what his good and perfect will is, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But if we refuse God's altar, if we don't submit to God's altar, then we end up sacrificing or destroying ourselves actually on our own altars of pleasure and selfish ambition as we chase the fleshly desires that we think will make us happy. And you can see Romans 6.16. It explains that more. So basically we can either sacrifice on God's altar or we can sacrifice on our own altar. We can do God's will or we can do our will. We can be transformed or we can be conformed. That's the two options that we have. Which altar are you going to sacrifice at? Verse 6. The cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate. The Babylonian army would destroy both the cities and the country region. So the whole land would be destroyed. So the high places were usually in the country. And verse 6. Your idols may be broken down and made to cease. Guess what? That's true. When the Jews went back, no more idol worship. It was never ever a problem Again, Babylon was a land of idols. God said, if you want idols, go to the land of Babylon. I'll take you there. <laughs> I said, no more. So, There's a quote from Feinberg here. Because the land had been defiled by idols, the idols themselves would now be defiled by the corpses of the worshippers, a retribution in kind. This would be the height of desecration, replacing the fragrance of incense with the odour of putrefication so instead of the nice incense that used to burn to these idols there's the smell of dead people verse 7 you shall know that I am the Lord now this is the first of about 60 times that this phrase you shall know that I am the Lord is used in the book of Ezekiel and it reveals that God's purpose in his judgments and restorations was so that Israel and the nations would know that God is the only true God. That's the whole purpose here. You shall know that I am the Lord. God wants to make himself known so that all people will turn to him and be saved. Now, God's grace. When we sin, there's always a remnant. There's always something that's left that God can use to rebuild. So in verse 8 it says, Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. I've got a quote from David Guzek on this. It says, Yet I will leave a remnant 
The remnant was illustrated in the acted out parable of the cut hair. That was last week, chapter 5. Here God specifically promised to leave a remnant that would be the basis of a later restoration. So this shows God's mercy and that when God disciplines us, he always has a plan which includes our restoration back to fellowship with himself. So when God disciplines us, it's always for the purpose of restoration. And a good verse to illustrate this, mercy of the Lord, when he leaves us a remnant which will then grow and be fruitful again, is Ezra 9.13. It says, and this is spoken by Ezra the priest after the captivity had returned back to the land of Israel. It says, but we have actually been punished far less than we deserved. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. So we deserve to be wiped out because of our sin. We're so evil, but God doesn't. He will discipline us, but he'll leave a remnant. He'll leave part of our life and we can grow and become fruitful again. He's not going to take us away completely. And the application here is that there's always a new beginning for us after God has disciplined us. And this is really important. We can feel that we've done too much. God will never listen to us again. We've blown it completely, but it's not true. Lamentations 3, 21-25. The context of this is Jeremiah sitting on a hill. He's looking down. He's watching Jerusalem burn. The temple's just burning. It's being destroyed. And... He writes the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is woe, weeping, and all that kind of stuff, right? Lamenting over things. This is what he says. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for or trust him, to the soul who seeks him. Again. This is what Jeremiah wrote right after the destruction of Jerusalem. So his people had sinned. His people had been judged. But what's his hope? His hope is still in God. Why? Because his compassions fail not. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. So it doesn't matter how badly we sin, there's always hope, there's always forgiveness because of his great mercy and compassion toward us. So we might have had a bad start in life. We can start in a bad family, you know, we can have a hard life at the start. But that's not the end of the story. What's more important is how you finish. Okay? What's more important is how you finish. If we finish well, we'll be rewarded. If we don't finish well, we're going to lose our reward. So we can make some bad choices and we can wreck our lives, but there's always that road back to recovery where we can be fruitful again. Once God has finished disciplining us, our lives will never be the same. And a couple of verses here. Second John verse 8, it says, Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. And it's not that we do it, but God does it through us, but we still are willing to be obedient to the Lord. But if we don't finish well, we lose our reward. And Philippians three twelve to 14, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things, or I have already reached perfection. Of course, we all understand what that means. None of us are perfect until we die. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. The whole reason Jesus saved us is to make us perfect. Verse 13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So going back to those lamentation verses, Jeremiah's looking at the city burning. He could have given up all hope, 
But no, he doesn't. He puts his faith in God. He knows as God has promised a remnant through Ezekiel's preaching. And he puts his hope in that. God, you're going to make something good of this nation again. And we can pray the same thing. God, you can make something beautiful of my life again. Now, we go on to verses 9 and 10. And it's talking about this renewal, how this happens, this repentance of the remnant. So Ezekiel 6, 9 and 10, it says, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me, and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. Notice verse 10 there. It's not in vain. Okay, This calamity, this judgment is not in vain. Why? Because they shall know that I am the Lord. It's talking about restoration. It's talking about renewed fellowship. So let's see how this happens. Verse 9. Those of you who escape will remember me. So, up till now, what have the people of Israel been doing? Well, <laughs> forgetting. They've been turning their back on God, doing their best to forget God and doing everything but seek God. But here is the promise that there would be a change of heart. They would remember God and begin to call upon his name. And the good quote by Paul here about they will remember me. My precepts, which they violated, my mercies, which they abused, my threats or discipline, which they despised, my promises, which they refused, my prophets, whom they persecuted, my judgments, which have been executed, and shall consider and return and seek me in their affliction. So they will come back to God. In verse 9 it also says, Because I was crushed, by their adulterous heart. This is God speaking. This is God revealing what happens to his heart when we sin. So the word crushed there is very strong. It means to be broken, shattered, smashed, destroyed, smashed into fragments, break into pieces, be crushed, to tear, to break down, brought to ruin. So it's a very strong word. It's hard to imagine, for me, God describing his heart as being so completely broken by our sin, and yet it's true. And for me personally, this, as I read through the Bible, I always feel like there's a knife through my heart when I read this verse, because I know that when I'm sinning, I'm breaking God's heart. I have to remember, remind myself that yes, my sin does affect God. God is not a stone either with no feelings. <laughs> okay, He's a person. We have emotions. Why? Because it made the image of God. He has emotions. God's capacity to love is infinitely greater than ours. Therefore, so is his capacity to be hurt. Does that make sense? It should be obvious to us that the more we love someone, the more they can hurt us. Why? Because we have made ourselves more open and vulnerable to them. An example if someone I've only just met says, well, David, I don't like you. I don't want to ever talk to you again. In fact, I hate you. I think, well, well, that's not very nice, but I don't really care. I don't really know you. But if my wife said the same thing to me, I'd be crushed. So remember that God has chosen to love each of us. <laughs> so beautiful. With his infinite, never-ending, overflowing, sacrificial love. He has made his heart wide open and vulnerable to being hurt or grieved. There's Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. A few quotes here to help us understand this. First one by David Guzik. Using a human analogy, God expressed the depth of the grief he felt over Israel's idolatry by likening himself to a husband with a constantly unfaithful wife. To here by Morgan, the strongest figure possible is used to portray the divine suffering. God is represented as broken. And again from Morgan, 
The amazing truth is most vividly brought out in the prophecy of Hosea, a man who was brought into an understanding of the suffering of God by his own domestic tragedy. That is the force of these words. So in the book of Hosea, God told Hosea to marry a woman called Goma, and what did she do? She was unfaithful, and then Hosea had to go and bite her back. That's what God's done for us. One more from Maya. Our sin can give God the heartbreak because he loves us so. Indeed, on the cross, the Lord died of a broken heart. Of this, the issuing stream of blood and water was the sign or the evidence. O heart of stone, you too must break and loathe yourself when you see your Lord broken by your sin. And that was from Maya. So before we keep going in Ezekiel 6, I'm going to apply this to us now. So if God is hurt when people sin, we're going to be hurt when people sin against us, when people hurt us, right? Does that mean we shut our hearts up and never allow anyone to love us? No. Yes, you have to have wise boundaries. But Whenever you love someone, you always open yourself up to the risk of being hurt. I want to have a look at the life of Jesus for a sec. Jesus in John 13.34 commands believers to love each other as he loved us. And when it's past tense there, it's based on his example while here on earth. So we can read the Gospels and see how he loved his disciples. Because Jesus says, as I have loved you, referring to the disciples. So this applies directly to the church and also indirectly to our families, especially believing families. So what did Jesus' love look like, especially to his disciples? Well, he made himself completely vulnerable to his disciples. You think about the night when he broke bread with them, the last night. He washed their feet with just a towel about him. And what were they talking about? Who's the greatest? He also knew that they would soon all fall asleep when he needed their support the most when he went out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then they would all forsake him when he was betrayed and arrested. And even when hanging on the cross, what was Jesus doing? He's thinking about other people, thinking about his mother Mary. And he said to John, Behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. And he was always thinking about other people. And a verse that sums up Jesus' love for us is this. And this is really powerful for me in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, that is, the disciples and the other believers, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He never gave up on them. Even when they were still arguing that he was the greatest and still being prideful and knowing that they would run away and abandon him and not pray with him and all that kind of stuff. He loved them to the end. Even though what they did hurt him, he loved them to the end. So in other words, while Jesus was on earth, as long as he had breath in his lungs, he was loving others by humbly considering them more important than himself and giving sacrificially to them. And he continued to do that. He was a true servant. And it didn't matter how many times the disciples messed up. He just kept on forgiving them and giving them a second and third, fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth chance. Yeah, that's what he does with us. Can we do that with other people? Peter said, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? And Jesus said, not seven times, like Peter said, I'll be really generous. Seven times, Jesus. Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. <laughs> oh, great. Are you going to count to 490? No, it means that you're going to keep on forgiving. So how could Jesus do this? How could Jesus continue to take this hurt that the disciples were, were doing? Not purposefully, but just because they were human and sinful, imperfect. Well, only because he was secure and fulfilled, completely fulfilled in his 
relationship with his Father. So if our relationship with God is strong, we will be able to continue to love and forgive others when they hurt us. And of course the opposite is true too. If our relationship is not strong, then we will be stumbled and we will become bitter. We will pull away when others hurt us and we won't be willing to forgive. So this is essential for unity among believers in the church and also for successful marriages. This is the kind of love that we need to have toward each other, a sacrificial, patient and forgiving love. Where does this love come from? It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. It only comes from being in relationship with God. Now, I say this tongue-in-cheek, something new here. How do we grow deeper in our relationship with God so we can love and forgive others more? It's not really new, is it? No, of course not. Get into the Word of God and obey it. Get into the Word and obey it. If we don't read the Word, we don't know God and we can't love someone who we don't know. And once we do start reading it, then if we don't obey, we won't experience His love. We need to obey then our joy will be full. Now, 1 Peter 1, to 25 says this, You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. This is a quick comment on the first verse there. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. If we focus on the sin, we will continue to sin. If we focus on what we should be doing instead, example, purity, then we can have victory over that sin. Now, coming back to Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9, and it says, After their idols. And this is what Israel forsook the living God for. Idols. Dumb, useless, lifeless, empty, filthy, disgusting idols. Now, Ezekiel actually made up a word to describe these idols, I believe. There's a quote by Taylor. The word for idols... Gulumin, um, G-U-L-L-U-L-I-M, is a favorite with Ezekiel, occurring no less than 38 times and nine times in the rest of the Old Testament. Its derivation is uncertain, but it's quite likely that it's a homemade word consisting of the vowels of the Hebrew siquus, for which the dictionaries give the polite translation of detested thing, and the consonants of a noun meaning a pellet of dung, the final combination carries about as much disdain and revulsion as any word could do. So if you want a word that's going to describe something disgusting, something that's foul and revolting, this is the word. So the word for idol is basically a word describing something that's so utterly disgusting and detestable, an utterly disgusting piece of dung. I'm going to apply this now as a picture of sin. That's what sin is, right? When we leave or forsake God to pursue sin, we are leaving what is good for what is evil, what brings blessings, true and lasting happiness, for what brings pain. We are leaving what brings true satisfaction and contentment for what eventually results in emptiness. We are leaving what brings light and revelation for what brings darkness, despair and depression. We are leaving what brings joy for what brings sorrow. We are leaving what brings life for what brings death. So that's what sin is. It's disgusting. It's awful. It's like a piece of dung. It's something that, yeah, it's hard to describe how bad and, and disgusting it is. But, you know, as an unbeliever, sin is very attractive. And they like this thing. Okay, but as a Christian, as we read the Bible more, as we get to understand God more, we become more like Him and we start to see sin more in this light. 
And that's why sin becomes easy to say no to, because it actually starts to become disgusting to us. So, an example. If I gave you two plates of food, one was a filet mignon steak with, you know, perfectly cooked, melt in your mouth, gravy, potatoes, you know, roast veggies. And then on the other plate, there was a piece of dog dung covered in wriggling maggots. Okay. Now, who in the right mind would push aside the plate with the steak on it and eat the dog dung covered in wriggling maggots? Guess what? <laughs> we all do. We choose sin over God. We choose to do what we want over what God wants. Now, why is it so disgusting? Why is sin so disgusting, so bad? It's because we're rejecting God's will for us. And whose will are we following then? Satan's will, right? We're receiving what Satan wants to give us. And what do Satan's gifts do? They kill, they steal, and destroy. So God gives us good gifts, yeah? James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from a Heavenly Father. So we can choose to receive His gifts, obey Him, or we can choose to go with Satan's offer. And verse 9, They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed. So there's an order here. First, they would remember the Lord and begin to seek Him. Then they would understand how evil they were and understand how badly their sin had hurt God. And this resulted in them loathing themselves. Now what this means is they experienced deep shame and mourning because of their sin. And this is when sin loses its power in our lives. Only when we genuinely hate it. A quote from David Guzik. Understanding the grief expressed by I was crushed by their adulterous heart is connected to they will loathe themselves. On both a divine and human level, it could be said, one day you will realize how your sin broke the heart of those who love you the most and you will hate yourself for it. I'll read that last sentence again. On both a divine and human level, it could be said, one day you will realize how your sin broke the heart of those who loved you the most and you will hate yourself for it. And that's true for my life. And the things I've done in the past too. So, verse 9, it says, They will loathe themselves. Another quote, They shall bleed inwardly and blush outwardly, deeply detesting their former abominations and not waiting till others condemn them. They shall condemn themselves. So this is an internal change, a change of heart, turning from sin, turning to God. Now, another thing which demonstrates true repentance is that we not just hate some of our sin, but we hate all of our sin. Why? Because all of our sin hurts God. Now, we can be sinning in a way and it has negative consequences. And we think, I need to deal with that sin. And so we repent of that sin, but not because we really want to change. It's because we want to protect ourselves from the consequence of that sin. True repentance is when we want to repent from all sin because we know that all sin hurts God. So that's a good way of knowing your motive. If I just want to repent of a couple of things and change my life in those areas, then I'm not really thinking about how it affects God. I'm thinking about how it affects me. If I'm wanting to repent of all my sin and say, God, please help me to live a life that pleases you in every area of my life, that's a sign that it's genuine repentance. It's not just how it affects me, but how it affects God. And in verse 10 it says, they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I will bring this calamity upon them. So here we see the purpose of God's discipline. It's never in vain, but it always brings about the fruit of righteousness to those who are willing to submit to it. So if we submit to God's discipline, it will have fruit. And what's God's purpose in disciplining us? It's to bring us to repentance so our fellowship with God is restored. So God's discipline is corrective, not punitive. 
And remember the three stages of repentance, if you can call it that, in chapter 6. It starts with the remembrance of God. We begin to seek God again. We start looking to Him. Repentance from sin. Loathing ourselves because of how our sin affects God. And then the relationship restored. They shall know that I am the Lord. And a quote from Clark. Those that escape the sword, the pestilence and the famine and shall be led into captivity shall plainly see that it is God who has done this and shall humble themselves on account of their abominations. Leave their idolatry and worship me alone. And this they have done from the Babylonish captivity to the present day. So, again, God's discipline worked. It had the desired effect. They did not go back to idol worship. Okay, verses 11 to 14. A call to anger and mourning over Israel's great sins. So it says, Thus says the Lord God, pound your fist and stamp your feet and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When the slain are among their idols, all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, under every thick oak, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols. So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla or Ribla. In all their dwelling places, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So why did God tell Ezekiel to do this new action sermon where he's clapping his hands in anger, not just in music, but in anger, and stamping his feet as he's giving this message. So he's going to be speaking this message and stamping his feet and clapping to communicate anger and strong emotion. Well, they didn't see their sin as being bad. They saw their sin as being okay. I would suggest that the modern church's view of any sin, there's a lot of compromise in the church. And it's like the church just doesn't care about sin anymore, whatever form it takes. God here is trying to get the people's attention and to show them that he does indeed regard their sin of idolatry, that physical and spiritual adultery, as being very serious. Sin is serious. That's the message here. And verse 11, again, the three judgments fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. And he's going to spend, which means to exhaust or completely pour out his fury on them. Which means that there will be an end to it. Remember that from last week? It's not going to continue on. There will be an end to God's discipline. It will be spent. It's finished. And then verses 13 and 14. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when the slain are among the idols. As we learned earlier today, this was literally fulfilled. They saw the bones of their leaders, the important people, scattered around the idols, and they said, wow, God said that would happen years before. And the Babylonians came and did it. The Israelites had no control over what the Babylonians did. They didn't ask the Babylonians to do that because that's a great insult to the Israeli people, you see. So the people did reject their idols and return to God. God saved the nation from spiritual decay. So, verse 14, so I will stretch out my hand. You know when you've done something wrong at home and your dad would stretch out his hand? Yeah, or bring the strap out or the cane, whatever you guys got, okay? I know that when I'd done something wrong, I knew I had it coming, yeah? So, our Heavenly Father also stretches out his hand. And... He does it for what is best for us in the long run. He's not out of anger. He's not because he's mad with us. He's doing it to bring us back to himself. And it has eternal benefits, the fruit of righteousness. Now, something I can pass on to you guys from my own experience is that some of us may not have had good fathers growing up and they didn't discipline us in love or at all. And so my father was easily angered, quite aggressive, 
And because that was my example of a father, I put that onto God. I imagine God as being aggressive and easily angered. How did I get around that? Well, get into the Word. If you want to know who God is, you need to get to know Him by reading His Word. And that will give you the right understanding of our Heavenly Father, that He's not like a human father. He's very patient. He's very merciful. He's very loving. And He will not punish us as we deserve. And all His correction is not punitive, but corrective. It's designed to bring us back into fellowship with Him through repentance. And... Just this word, dibla, uh, this is one of those things in verse 14, it says, more desolate than the wilderness towards dibla. It's probably meant to be ribla. It's the place where the king of Babylon was judging the people. It's a city in the south of Syria, and basically a quote here from Wiersbe. Some Hebrew manuscripts read ribla, a city in Syria, and this seems to fit. God promised to devastate the land from the desert to ribla. That is, from the south to the north. It's like saying from Dan to Bathsheba, or here we could say from Esperance to Kananara, <laughs> all right? from the north to the south. So that's one of those things that can happen when the scripture's been passed on, copied and copied and copied. If the letters are very similar, you can get these odd spelling mistakes. Now, in conclusion, the three stages of repentance are, remember God? We begin to seek him again. We repent from our sin by loathing ourselves because of how our sin hurts God. And then our relationship is restored and we know that he is the Lord. Uh, Secondly, sexual immorality is a major stumbling block for people of all ages. It's part of our human nature. It's part of the way we're made. Our modern sexualized world is actually very similar to what it was like in the nation of Israel. We have porn freely available. But they had the pressure of being expected to partake in the idol worship, you see. That was a very strong social pressure. And part of that was the ritual harlots. So it's like, you know, we've got the TV today with all its rubbish and the internet and movies and TV programs, whatever. They had a different form of pressure, but still the same pressure. Uh, Thirdly, abortion is not a new thing. And the battle for the lives of babies, born or unborn, continues. And I want to encourage us to take a stand and do what we can to save the lives of the unborn. And of course, if a person does have an abortion, it's just like any other sin. It can be forgiven and you can be healed. Four, judgment is coming. Just as the nation of Israel rebelled against God and was deserving of judgment, so are we. So is our culture. So is our nation. And the tribulation will be how God judges this evil world. It's deserving of judgment. I can't believe that God has waited so long. And five, to the extent that a believer invests in, partakes of, enjoys or finds fulfillment in this world, that will be the extent that they lose their reward in heaven. And sixth, lastly, sin breaks God's heart. Please don't forget this. It's not about us. It's all about God who loves us and gave himself for us. I just want to read, maybe we can do this together, Ezekiel chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. So, you ready? Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. Father, thank you for these words. Lord, you are cutting to the heart now as we get into these chapters of what's going on inside our hearts. It's going to get hard as we have to reflect on these things and we have to make changes if we're going to grow and change and grow to be more like you. So help us to be strong in you and willing to allow you to examine us and show us where we're going wrong. Show us 
the areas of our life which are not submitted to you. Help us to realize that when we're sinning, we're hurting you. And Lord, help us to have this desire to love you by not hurting you. Lord, we don't want to hurt those we love. Help that to be our motivation to stop sinning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.